0: Shall we pray as we stand? Father God, thank you that you want to speak to us this evening through your word, the Bible. Thank you that you want to show us your goodness so that we might enjoy you more and so that we might be changed more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts now. By your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take your seats. How can I taste and see that the Lord is good when he's eating with them? How can Jesus be laughing and cracking jokes with them when just earlier today? They were, doesn't he know what they've done? What they've said, who they've hurt. If he's eating with them, does that mean he supports? Uh, if he's going to eat with them, well, I, I'm not sure I want a seat at his table. Tonight we're going to think about how we can taste and see that the Lord is good when he eats with sinners. Sinners how this good and holy God can share a meal with the ungodly and the irreligious. If you've ever read one of the Gospels, then you can't escape from the fact that Jesus is constantly sharing meals with a wide range of people. And that more often than not, he's in the presence of those that no one else would want to be. Uh, the kind of people you don't invite around for dinner in, in case they steal something on their way out. Are uh, The kind of people whose mealtime small talk just leaves everyone around the table feeling quite uncomfortable. The kind of people you don't invite around in case someone hears that they were at your house. Uh, and So their bad reputation rubs off on you as you're associated with them if we've been in church for a while, these verses may have lost their effects a bit. They might be familiar to us. We might immediately jump to, isn't this wonderful? This is vintage Jesus. This is why he is my king. All of which I think are the right response to our passage. But I wonder if Jesus were physically here today, sharing meals in Nottingham, Wherever it is, with people that you and I know, who would he have to share a meal with for you to think, really? Them? As we consider this question of how we can taste and see that the Lord is good when he eats with sinners, we're going to focus in on three pictures in our passage that Jesus uses to show us why this is really good news to rejoice in. News worth shouting about, because it's news that helps each of us in this room to taste and see that the Lord is good. Picture one, a doctor for the sick. Uh, We're jumping into Matthew's gospel in a section where Jesus' authority is on display for all to see. Uh, If later you read chapter 8, you'll see him perform miracle after miracle, healing the sick, calming the storm, casting out demons. And then at the start of chapter 9, he even claims he has the authority to forgive a person all their sins, all the wrong things that they have ever done in this life. And we pick up the story as Jesus moves on from that place in chapter 9, verse 9. Look with me. Tax collecting has never been a popular job, Uh, but it is an important one. Uh, It is necessary for the government and therefore the country to function. If you are here and you work for HMRC tonight, or you have plans to work for HMRC after you graduate, be reassured you can work for HMRC and be a Christian, a follower of Jesus too. Tax collectors really get a bad rep in the Gospels. But there's a reason. Because in this cultural moment in history that we've just read about, being a tax collector, it's less like working for HMRC. It was more like collecting taxes for the Nazis during World War II, following the invasion of your country. At this point in history, Israel had been invaded by the Romans. They were under their occupation and tax collectors were Jews who worked for and collected taxes for the Romans. They were seen as traitors, collaborators, those who had betrayed their own people just so they could prop up the Roman regime in order that they might line their own pockets with riches in the process. And that's why this meal generated so much controversy at the time. Jesus sees Matthew in verse 9, simply says, follow me. And Matthew, so captivated by Jesus's authority, does just that. And so in verse 10, Jesus and his disciples, they go to eat at Matthew's house. And he invites over all his friends, other tax collectors and the shady kind of company that they kept. And just like today, eating a meal with someone is quite an intimate thing. You invite them into your home, your space. It's often a symbol of friendship. And so the Pharisees see this and they must be thinking to themselves, how can Jesus be laughing and cracking jokes with them when just earlier today they were, doesn't he know what they've done, what they've said, who they've hurt? If he's going to eat with them, does that mean... And so they go to his disciples and ask them in verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? To which Jesus replies in verse 12 and 13, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because Jesus is the divine doctor working on the front line to bring healing to sin sick sinners. He's come to bring salvation to sinners who listen to his word. Jesus' point in these verses is not that the Pharisees are healthy, but they see themselves as healthy. And not that they are righteous, but that they see themselves as righteous. Jesus has not come for any self-righteous Pharisee who thinks that they are good enough for God based on their own reputation and works. He has come for the sinful Matthews of the world who know they are not He's not come for those that suppress and ignore the spiritual cancer that grows within them. He's come for those who know that they are spiritually sick and who humbly, desperately throw themselves into the care of Jesus, accepting the healing medicine for sin and for death that only he can bring. The Pharisees were those who thought they were good enough for God. They offered the right kind of sacrifices. They ate with the right kind of people. And so Jesus quotes them, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God had said to his people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I don't want your outward sacrifices. I don't want your religious deeds or your good reputation." I want your heart. Following me is not about proving what you can do for me. It is about accepting what I can do for you. To follow Jesus is to admit that you are a sinner, just like everybody else, and to humbly receive the mercy that only he can offer. And it then looks like extending that same kind of mercy that you have received from God to those around you. Michael Green writes this. Jesus's kingdom is a one class society for sinners only. How can Jesus be laughing and cracking jokes with them when just earlier today they were doesn't he know what they've done what they've said who they've hurt? He can eat with them because he can eat with you and he can eat with me. This is how we can taste and see that the Lord is good when he eats with sinners. Because Jesus knows and sees everything that we have ever said, thought and done. He knows all of the ways in which we failed to live the lives that we were made to. He is the only one who knows you and me fully inside and out, beyond the veneer that we put up on a Sunday. And yet, despite what he knows and what he sees, he still longs that we join him at his dinner table. In fact, he loves us so much that he was willing to bring us healing from our sin, even though the only cure for our sin required his death on the cross. And he was willing to endure that death on the cross so that you and I might have a seat at God's dinner table. The only question is, are we willing to walk through his restaurant doors if the sign nailed to the outside reads, for sinners only? Point two, picture two, a bridegroom for the bride probably while he's at Matthew's house eating the same meal, Uh, some of John the Baptist's disciples come and ask Jesus another question. Uh, But this time it's a question about fasting. Uh, Fasting was very common in Judaism. There were lots of special days where you would fast and give up food. Uh, And the Pharisees were known to show special spiritual devotion uh, by fasting at least two times a week which meant that Jesus' disciples, they stood out because they didn't fast. Look down with me at verse 14 and 15 of our passage. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Where are they? There they are. In just a few weeks time, I'm going to have the privilege of speaking at the wedding of two of our members here. They're over there. Joseph Warren and Amy Nash. Not long now. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be an amazing day full of joy and celebration. And It is a day that I am looking forward to. But I want you all to imagine for a moment that as I come up to speak, instead of scrubbing up well, wearing one of my best wedding suits, I I instead come up crying, looking utterly miserable, uh, wearing all black sackcloth, my hair totally unkempt, uh, and I've even taken some ashes from a fireplace and poured them over my head. How do you think Joe and Amy and their gathered friends and family would feel? Already seeing some uh, worried reactions. Jesus' point in these verses is you do not wear funeral clothes to a wedding. You don't fast at the wedding reception. To us, this might seem like slightly strange imagery to use, but here Jesus is picking up on Old Testament imagery where God describes himself as a bridegroom and a husband for his people, his bride. John Piper writes about these verses in his book on fasting, A Hunger for God. Fasting is for times of yearning and aching and longing, but the bridegroom of Israel is here, After a thousand years of dreaming and longing and hoping and waiting, he is here. The absence of fasting in the band of disciples was a witness to the presence of God in their midst. Jesus' disciples were sinners who had been called into God's kingdom. They were those who had tasted and seen that the Lord is good because despite their sin, Jesus wanted to eat with them. He wanted to be sat with them at their table. And so Jesus says this called for a time of celebration, rejoicing for his disciples, not for fasting and mourning. But then notice that Jesus goes on to say, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus is speaking to John the Baptist's disciples who would have felt the full force of those words because Herod had recently beheaded their leader, John. As Jesus says these words, he probably has his own crucifixion and burial in mind at a more appropriate time for his disciples to put on their funeral clothes and mourn and lament and fast at the loss of their bridegroom. But he might also be thinking beyond this after his resurrection, but with his ascension to heaven in mind too, a time where his followers will fast as they yearn and ache and long for the Lord Jesus to return. So how are we to understand these verses as followers of Jesus today? Are we to be those who rejoice and take joy in our bridegroom Jesus, who has come for us, his bride, his church, Or should we be those who mourn and fast because our bridegroom is not here with us physically because he has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven? I think the answer is yes. For Christians to apply these verses today is to apply them as those who both rejoice and mourn, as those who rejoice because we know that our bridegroom is Jesus, and right now he is present with us by his spirit, but also as those who mourn, because we don't see Jesus face to face, and so we long for him to return so that we might enjoy being with him in full. Christians are to be a rejoicing and mourning people, to be those who engage in the world, displaying a joy that people long for and crave, whilst also being those who engage in the world as those who mourn and fast. Showing people from the way that we live that we know this world is not it. It is not our final destination. Because for all those who are in Jesus, there is the promise of something better to come. That the bridegroom is coming back to bring his bride to be where he is. Fasting could warrant an entire sermon in and of itself, uh, which we don't have time for. Uh, But I thought it was important for those of us who maybe have never considered Christian fasting before uh, to just briefly see some examples of what it might look like to fast while Jesus is absent. Listen to this extended quote from Douglas Sean O'Donnell. We have the freedom to fast, I word it that way intentionally for notice that Jesus does not say that Christians must fast. That is important. This is not a command. Nor does Jesus say that Christians ought to fast in a shame on you if you don't kind of way. Rather, he says they will fast. We will fast when we are trying to develop and practice self-control. Telling our flesh who is in control of our bodies when it comes to resisting temptation and sin. We will fast to grow our moral muscles. If we can resist tasty food that is not so good for us, we can resist those sensual pleasures that are also not good for us. We will fast when we're repenting of sin, the times where we failed to control ourselves. We will fast to say, I'm sorry, Lord. Please help me, Lord. We will fast as the early church did when we are calling upon the Lord to know his will, make a wise judgment, or ask him to open a door for the gospel. We will fast simply because we long for the wedding of the Lamb. We will fast because we long for the day when God will let justice roll like a mighty river the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Final picture. Point three, a replacement for the rules. Our passage concludes uh, as Jesus uses two illustrations together that unless we're familiar with textiles or historic winemaking, we might not be particularly familiar with Look down with me at verse 16 and 17. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. skins. And both are preserved. The student worker at my old church uh, in London, Tim Shepherd, once explained these verses to me using the illustration of some milk that had gone out of date. I don't know if you knew this, but you can tell a lot about a person from the way that they interact with out of date milk. Maybe you're the type of person to take no risks and you pour it down the drain the second it's past its expiry date. Perhaps you like to live life on the edge, a bit of a thrill, and so you give it the infamous smell check. But I wonder, what would you do if your milk was so out of date that it smelt and it had blue lumps floating around within it in a kind of creme fraiche consistency my guess is you don't go out to the shops buy some new milk take it home undo the caps of both milks mix them together the new with the old and then proceed to pour the new hybrid milk over your cereal as if that had sorted the problem. If your milk is so out of date that it looks more like liquid Stilton than milk, you throw it out and you replace the old with the new. Jesus' point here is that he has brought something new that replaces the old. Something new and good that the rituals and the traditions that the Pharisees had constructed just could not contain his kingdom and his teaching, they're not a new patch that you can just stitch on to the old garments. It's not something that can be contained by old wineskins or they will burst. It's not something that can be mixed together with the old. Jesus has brought something totally new that if you try to mix with the old, it will destroy it. He's come to undermine the Pharisees' self-righteous way of doing things. He's come to uproot the idea that relationship with God is somehow based on our good deeds and our good works. Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is good news for anyone here tonight who knows that they are a sinner. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not disconnecting himself from the Old Testament. And he's certainly not claiming to disconnect himself from the God of the Old Testament. In fact, we've seen the opposite as he's drawn upon that bridegroom image from the Old Testament. But Jesus is disconnecting himself from the false religion the Pharisees had constructed for themselves and any other religion that says that relationship with God is somehow based upon our achievement or our merit or our reputation. The wonderful news that Jesus brings is that entry into his kingdom is based on grace alone, on faith in what Jesus has done and not in what you and I could do. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you have come to our evening service this week, having spent the last week soaking in shame, worried that you're not a good enough Christian for God, feeling like an imposter sat around his dinner table, be reminded that your place there is based entirely on Christ's finished work, not on your own. It is based on his goodness, not your faltering merit or achievement. Your place at his table is dependent on his great love for you. Not on your wavering affection for him. You're there because he loves you and he wants you to be there. He's not come to top up your good efforts this week. He's come to be your goodness, which is wonderful, freeing news because it led to even someone like Matthew from our passage, it led to him no longer collecting taxes, instead writing an entire gospel celebrating what Jesus had done, the freedom that he had bought. If you come to our evening service next week, expecting a normal service, then I'm afraid you are going to be disappointed. Don't worry, most of the normal components of an evening service will still be around. We're going to sing together. We're going to hear God's word read and preached. And we're going to enjoy gathering together as the Lord's people. But we're going to do so over a three-course meal. Because as part of our Taste and See series, we thought it only fitting that we actually shared a meal together. So please turn up, normal place, normal time. As Miriam said, maybe don't eat before you come. In fact, maybe try and come to our evening service hungry. So that together we can spend some time helping one another to taste and see that the Lord is good. As we are fed both physically and spiritually. And during next week's service, we're going to particularly think about the Lord's Supper, a time where we mourn and lament that our sin was so bad that it required the death of God's one and only Son. But as we rejoice and celebrate that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son for us, a time where we rejoice that because of Christ's work on the cross, we can know that our bridegroom is present with us as we go out into the world this week. He's present with us by his spirit each and every day, whatever comes, but also as we fast and long and yearn for his return so that we can see him face to face in a world where the bridegroom and the bride will never be separated at the time where we celebrate the wonderful news that Christ Jesus came to replace the reputational rules of the world by eating with sinners like us, showing us that we really can taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's close our time by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us your precious son, Jesus Christ. And for sending him because of your great love for us, despite our unfaithfulness to you. Help us this week to fix our eyes on him, on his goodness, on his reputation and not our own. And help us to be those who extend the love and the mercy that we have received from him to all those, all those you bring into our path this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.